Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omid Izami. It's been a few weeks since the last episode, so I do apologize for the long gap. I have a lot of great interviews coming up over the next few weeks, and I'm excited to be sharing them with you. I've been getting a lot of messages lately from dentists from around the world, and I must say I really do sincerely appreciate the kind words, and it really does give me the motivation to continue to put together these great interviews for you guys, the listeners. In this week's episode, I had the great opportunity to sit down with two of Australia's premier endodontists, Dr. Mehdi Rahimi and Dr. Mark Johnson. Dr. Mehdi Rahimi is an endodontist based in Sydney, Australia. He is an adjunct associate professor at Charles Sturt University and is involved in endodontic continuing education programs and teaching at various levels, both throughout Australia and abroad. Dr. Mark Johnston is an endodontist based in Melbourne and is also involved in teaching in continuing education programs with uh, Dr. Mehdi Rahimi, and they run a lot of great courses, which I was actually lucky enough to attend. Mark just recently completed his Master's of Health and Medical Law as well at the University of Melbourne, and uh, Mark was actually completing his endo postgrad while I was a dental student at the University of Melbourne, and I had the great uh, opportunity to learn from him as he was one of my endo demonstrators in dental school. In this interview, we cover a lot of great topics, including the importance of mentors, whether or not to specialize in endodontics in 2019, emerging trends in endodontics, staying out of trouble with a solid informed consent process, and much, much more. This episode is brought to you by my good friends at Henry Shine Australia. With over 60,000 products available from consumables, CAD CAM technology, lab equipment, and continuing education courses, you can always rely on them to be your trusted business partner every step of the way. If you haven't already, be sure to check out Foresight Dental. That's the number four, S-I-G-H-T, Dental, on Instagram and Facebook. Foresight is a collaborative project between myself and Dr. David Keir. And we've put this together and we're actually putting on the final touches on our Foresight Dental journal, which we'll announce pre-sales on quite soon. We're hoping that this journal helps young dentists accelerate the first few years of their careers. And we're really excited to get this into the hands of as many young grads as we can. As always, if you've been enjoying listening to the Newbie Dentist podcast, please be sure to pass along the podcast to your friends, classmates, and colleagues. If you haven't already, head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating. And if you have some time, please leave a review as well. Without further delay, I hope you enjoy this jam-packed episode with Dr. Mehdi Rahimi and Dr. Mark Johnston and enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to the Newbie Dentist Podcast, the safe place for newbie dentists to connect, collaborate, learn, and grow. The Newbie Dentist Podcast aims to provide high-quality and high-value content for all the newbie dentists out there. With your host, Dr. Omer Zami. Okay, so I'm here with uh, Dr. Mehdi Rahimi and uh, Dr. Mark Johnson, uh, both endodontists here in Australia working in uh, Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, super kind with their time and super generous to be here on their Sunday to talk some endodontics with us new grads who are listening. Mark, I had him as an endo postgrad demonstrator during my time at Melbourne Uni, so I, I've had a chance to work with him and, and learn from him. And uh, Mehdi, I just kind of, I've heard, I had heard about you a lot, obviously, you're involved with teaching a lot across Australia. And I was at one of your courses, um, you guys held that together a few weeks ago, and that's where we kind of connected and, and kind of teed this uh, interview up. So uh, I just want to thank you guys for coming on today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. 
Thanks for having us. Cheers. So, so normally how I start these things off is a bit of an origin story. For me, one of my big passions is just trying to figure out, you know, um, you know, high achieving dentists who are kind of doing stuff, you know, even beyond clinical dentistry, running courses and things, sort of what their motivating factors are, what kind of got them into dentistry in the first place. So I guess, uh, Matthew, we'll start with you since the uh, camera is on you right now. Um, maybe sure. give us your origin story, sort of where you came up about why you decided to get into dentistry and then we'll go from there. So um, I was, uh, well, I mean, I'm born and bred in uh, New Zealand. Um, and while growing up, I had two parents that were in the medical industry. My sister actually did medicine as well, but she decided it's not for her. So I, I grew up in a family of doctors um, where my parents had, uh, they were gynecologists, so they wouldn't be home um, and they'll leave at odd hours uh, to go see patients and, you know, deliver babies. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in a um, family of extended family with Professor Memo Turbinijat, uh, author of Principles and Practice of Endodontics and uh, inventor of MTA being um, a fam distant family member. Of oh, nice. so, yeah. so I sort of, you know, when I was a child, would, would, whenever we went to the States, I would visit him at Loma Linda. And I kind of, you know, grew to like dentistry because I was hands-on uh, somewhat. I like technology and I like sciences. So I started biomedical sciences, moved on to dentistry because I sort of watched a lot of dentists <laughs> work, you know, and I thought, well, you know, it's a, it's a good hands-on, probably a better lifestyle because you don't have to work on Saturdays or midnights uh, yeah. <laughs> or early hours of the morning like my parents and didn't have to like, you know, wor worry about that part and I could sort of select what I want to do. I did, when I started dentistry, um, I guess, had have chats with uh, Professor Torbinijad and, and others and I was, I always thought, um, um, I can't be a jack of all trades. I, I just prefer to do one thing well. Yeah. And of course, I, I, I did I did enjoy teaching. I even taught when I was in my undergrad degree, um, um, and even when I was doing biomedical science. You know, I, I just enjoyed that part uh, where I could explain things to people. Anyway, so I asked Mahmoud. Mahmoud said, "Do orthodontics. Everyone <laughs> wants to do also. It's much better than endo." Yeah. And I was like, "All right, all right." Well, um, you know, I did the long course in ortho, and it was a bit boring. Yeah. Um, again, I just um, hope you're not going to show this to too many orthodontists. <laughs> um, but I, I orthodontist wasn't my forte. I did the long course at Sydney Uni. I thought, nah, it's, uh, I, could, I couldn't handle it. I just couldn't hack it. I couldn't understand it. Um, we never got taught well in undergrad anyway. Yeah. So anyway, just a kind of long story short, ended up doing dentistry in, um, in the outskirts of Sydney back then. So it is central now, but it used to be outskirts, yeah. uh, south Liverpool for gentle dental care um, and I was seeing at odd hours because they were giving me weekends and late nights till 10 p.m. I would do a lot of endodontic therapies. I got better at it over time because I still remember coming out. I found endodontics very challenging, accessing teeth, and I still remember this poor poor guy, 60-something-year-old guy. Um, someone gave me a tungsten car. White bird I never used before. I went right through the furcation, oh. you know, like a size eight bird. The tooth was unrestorable. So yeah. I started from really not liking endo, yeah. really, really being frustrated with it from access to getting down calcified canals. On. And then eventually I started to like it because I did more of it. So with practice, I did more. And then I thought, well, you know, I actually start to enjoy this because I focus on one tooth, rubber damn it. You know, it's kind of like um, 
uh, probably to me was a bit simpler than prosthodontics yeah. where you where you do yeah but I, I guess these days because i've worked with others i sort of don't just treat the tooth in isolation but still doing endo is a little simpler because you're just dealing with one one tooth most of the time yeah that's me that's me anyway Mark. So, so how long did yeah. you work as a general dentist before getting back and doing endo i did about uh, three years three years so during uh, the first or second year uh, with a colleague of mine who's a prosthodontist now, Ben Lee, we lived together, so we went through, did the primaries exams. Yeah. It was good to be motivated to do that um, because he wanted to also do it. So um, <laughs> you need you need someone to do the primaries exams with because it's such a boring um, and, and, and actually ended up being quite a stressful exam because you think to yourself, oh, it's easy, it's basic sciences, but then if you don't, you know, like get your act together, you know, two or three weeks before you're like, oh my God, there's so much bulk <laughs> of yeah. material. Like I still remember um, in particular, oral pathology was tough. That's tough. That was the hardest for me. And at that point you've been out, like you've, it's, you've a few years removed from like learning those basic sciences the first time. So it's tough to kind of go back and review everything. And yeah. It was just like sort of rote learning. Um, ben was very organized. So I'll never forget Ben's notes. They were so tidy. Yeah. Um, they were just like a Bible, you know, you just go through it, and, you know, um, that they, they really helped to be honest. Whereas I was like, oh yeah, to be honest, all over the show beforehand and I was working too hard and I was teaching at Sydney uni at, um, what's called United Dental Hospital. Now it's Sydney Dental Hospital. Okay. So I was doing a bit too much and I sort of didn't give it enough effort. Um, but I, I managed to pass, um, yeah. but that was a tough one. But, um, after that we both applied. So it was third year out. So we finished three years and then we got in, um, he got into prize, I got into endo. Perfect. And Mark, what about yourself? What's the, uh, what's the origin story? If you can give that to us. My, my origin story is a little bit different to Medi's because um, I mean, he comes from a family of doctors and I come from a family of tradies. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> dating back like 200 years, the Johnstons are just all tradesmen. Um, so yeah. I grew up on and around building sites with my dad and um, they always knew it was kind of going to be a weird kid because um while they're all you know while my brother's busy getting all you know into the plaster and what have you i was always in the in the corner finding a tap to wash my hands constantly <laughs> uh, Mark constantly washing his hands or something like that. um but uh growing up i was one of those sick kids that was in and out of hospital a lot and uh originally i wanted to be a doctor so i wanted to be a doctor since i was about eight years old and uh you know i found a good mentor my my old gp passed away last year unfortunately um used to sort of when i go in there just for my own medical stuff he talked to me about medicine and i'd ask him questions and all of that and he knew that i wanted to be a doctor and then year 12 he said to me uh oh you know it's coming up to coming up to crunch time um you know pretty soon you're going to be in medicine and then you can look forward to the internship year when you're doing 60 hour weekends and you're not sleeping you know three days in a row I sold it. And I kind of thought to myself, geez, that's, that's a bit rough. Um, I, I wasn't really having a good time of it in year 12. I kind of thought, gee, I like sleep. Uh, I kind of want to have more of it. Yeah. Uh, and dentistry was always on my preference list after medicine because um, my mum was scared to death of the dentist. And we had a really good experience at the dentist. I kind of thought it's always something I could do to help her out. And I went and had a chat to my dentist the week before applications for subject for you know, uni courses happen. And yeah. um, my dentist stayed behind after work for an hour and a half and talked to me about pretty much everything that dentistry has to offer. And he's a, he's a general dentist that um, has upskilled himself so that he does a lot of, of general dentistry, um, crown bridge, endo, but also orthodontics and implant. Both nice. Yeah. 
Uh, and he showed me what dentistry has to offer, and it's more than just drill and fill and you name it. There's a, there's a whole lot more to it. So I thought this is kind of really cool. So I put dentistry as number one preference all of a sudden, so, you know, chopping from an eight-year-old to an 18-year-old, going medicine the whole way within dentistry. Um, yeah. Got into dentistry, thankfully, uh, <laughs> I guess, you know, thankfully I got in. Uh, and funnily enough, during the first couple of years of dental school, I kind of chopped and changed as to whether I wanted to transfer into med or, or, or stay in dent because uh, first three years of dental school, I mean, you were DDS, so it's a bit different for you, but for us, yeah. three years of dental school was just, yeah. well, first year is science, second year is uh, caries and perio, and third year is caries, perio, and dentures. <laughs> um, honestly, I did not enjoy the first three years of dental school at yeah. I kind of thought to myself, what what the hell am I doing here? Um, and I remember one of the guys in the year above me, <clears throat> who's now a prosthodontist, as it turns out, uh, saying to me, just you wait till you get to fourth year, you're going to be doing endo. And endo is the worst thing on earth. <laughs> you suck, just you wait till you do endo. And no one I spoke to had a good opinion about endo. All of them hated it. Yeah. I thought, geez, this is going to be like, it's only going to get worse from here. I thought dentures were the worst thing on earth, right? So my wife, my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, uh, said to me, Mark, your attitude is trash. There's tons of people that would love to be in the situation that you're in. Rather than whinging and bitching about endos going to suck next year, why don't you suck it up, buy pathways of the pulp and just study it like a beast before you start fourth year, you know, preclinical endo. And if yeah. you still hate it after then, fine. Dentistry is just not for you. But see if you can change your attitude and maybe you might start to actually enjoy this dentistry thing. So I did that. And it actually turned out that endo really spoke to me. So um, I was really pumped up. I'd read Pathways of the Pulp. I was really pumped. Get into my first week of preclinical, get my first tooth, and I break a file. Yeah. <laughs> And John O'Moore was my demo at the time. John O'Moore went through postgrad with Medi. And yeah. um, someone just laughed at me and said, yeah, plenty more where that came from. So I thought, oh, geez, this endo thing might not be for me. But every, you know, the cases after went really, really well. And I was getting like a lot of, a lot of you know, confidence. And then middle of preclinical endo in fourth year, um, we used to call it the intensive period. So during four weeks, you would learn all the pros and all the endo you're going to do before you start yeah. out in the clinics. Um, second week of intensive period, my appendix burst. And I had some complications after the surgery and spent uh, nearly two weeks in hospital. Wow. So during that time, I was there was no iPhone for me back then. I don't think iPhone even released back then. God's showing my age. Um, <laughs> so I had nothing to do, but the undergraduate endo competition was available. So I got... The essay competition? Or? Competition, yeah. So because I'm doing nothing but sitting in a hospital bed with no internet and nothing to do, I got my wife to do some of the data collection for me. Um, I would have these printouts sitting in my hospital bed and I would go through wrote my essay sitting in a hospital bed in my hospital. And that's what really hammered home my love for endo because of the fact that I did nothing but endo for two weeks with literally just just no other distractions whatsoever. And yeah. I found that endo really just spoke to me. Um, I'm not, I don't have an eye for aesthetics. I mean, there's, there's no video going right now, but if you look at me right now, I look like a homeless. <laughs> 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 I haven't shaved. 
Uh, <laughs> I, I don't have an eye for aesthetics whatsoever. Um, and I find that with endo, it's the most biologically driven part of dentistry. Yeah. So it's, it's really easy. You come in, you've got a biological problem, and I can help with a biological problem. Someone comes in and goes, I don't like the look of my teeth. I might go, well, what, what can I what can I really what can I really do with that? Like I, I think your teeth look fine, you know, really. My teeth aren't anything to, you know, smile at most of the time either. Uh, and like if you look at all the specialties, endo is the one where you have an infection or you've got an inflammation or you've got some sort of pain and you don't need to upsell that either. So I don't need to convince people to do anything in my job because yeah. you kind of need it or you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, which also speaks to me because I'm not a salesman. So um, I, I did a lot of endo in undergrad. I think I did probably more endo than anyone else in, in uh, year level at the time, if I remember correctly. I did a lot. I did like, I think, 15 to 16 cases. Wow, that's a lot, yeah. That's a lot. Um, that was just at the dental hospital, including all the stuff at the um, community centres where I tried to take as many endos as possible. When I graduated, I tried to do as much endo as possible, but I tried to do a bunch of everything. So I tried to do a bit more restorative because I thought, well, you know, you, you can't just be a one-trick pony. So I did um, Michael Mendicos and Tony Rotondo did a full mouth rehab course back in yep. uh, I did that and I thought that was sensational. It also told me that I'm never going to do pros. <laughs> I was lucky because I worked in a clinic with my wife and she loved pros and I loved endo. So I would do the endos and I got to hand her the pros stuff. I would say to them, look, you know, women got a better eye for aesthetics than me. And patients would go, yeah, I agree with that. And off they go, you know, go to her. I'd be happy. Um, but I just knew that, I, that that's what I wanted to do. When I had endo patients, I just thought to myself, this is going to be a great afternoon because I've got an hour and a half to do an endo. Once that rubber dam goes on, it's just me and the tooth and nothing else matters. So... Um, yeah, so that's how I sort of found the love of endo. I did a lot of endo CPD. I mean, I did every endo CPD course known to man because um, I was the last year at Melbourne Uni that didn't learn rotary, so I was all hand fired. Uh, so I did uh, every course. I did the Guns course. I did the Densply course. I did the Bio Race course. I did the TF course. Um, I learned as much as possible. I went to every ASE lecture. Um, I did a couple of other, I did the, um, the Melbourne university two day endo course as well that they, the contemporary endo they do every year. Um, so I just did all of that and went and observed at specialists as well. So I was very, uh, fortunate to have some really, really good specialists that I referred to who were very kind with their time and allowed me to come down and annoy them once or twice a year to, you know, watch them work. And I found that really hammered home the whole, well, I'm watching what they do every day. I reckon I could kind of like doing this and uh, yeah. so I applied and um, I somehow got accepted uh, and um, I didn't have my primaries, which is probably the, the weird part of it. Most people, you have to have your primaries before you. Yeah, first. Um, I think it's because I had done so much CPD and I had done so much other endo stuff that that sort of, you know, gave me enough oomph to get an interview. Um, but the funny thing is I'd actually been enrolled for the primaries anyway because I expected I wasn't going to get an interview. Yeah. Uh, and then I got accepted without them. And because my wife was doing the primaries, misery loved the company and I wasn't allowed to back out. Yeah. So still did I had to do it whether I liked it or not, uh, even though I'd already been accepted. Uh, and, yeah, and then um, got into endo and the rest is, yeah, the rest has been just endo since 2012. 
So, so if you're, if you're lucky enough to get into the course without primaries, do you still have to do the primaries as a part of your registration or, you know, no, no, but, um, from what I've, I think me, I think Prof Parashos. It's an expectation. He, um, he makes it uh, an expectation. I think it's an expectation yeah. now that you've done your primaries or your MRACTUS at the very least. Uh, yeah. Your, your resume would have to be pretty beefed up with something else to not, to, to be able to get an interview because, um, you know, when I was interviewed, I was, the, in my opinion, I was the least qualified person out of the seven people that were interviewed. Like every single one of the other people interviewed had another degree, whether it was a, um, one of them had a grad dip in implant therapy, another yeah. had a master's of dentistry, another had a master's engineering of all things. Wow. Um, yeah. And then there's me. I've been a dentist for three years and I just done as much endo as humanly possible. But um, in a sense as well, the one thing I had was I had a lot of rounding. So I'm one of those guys that was spending, you know, over five figures on CPD a year. I did <laughs> CPD, I did pros CPD, I did so That's the right approach. Yeah. I wanted to know everything possible in dentistry, even though... I was never going to take out an impacted wisdom tooth. I still wanted to know about it because I just thought the more I know, knowledge is power. So I think that's what got me over the line more than anything else because I was incredibly well-rounded and I had pretty good, de- I had decent marks in uni as well. I, I, won a cup, I won an award and I was on Dean's honours list. So I had, nice. I had that going. That helps, yeah. That does help significantly. <laughs> I think that's, that's one of my uh, my limiting factors is definitely the uh, the great point average during dental school. <laughs> yeah, so for you know endos endos cool for me you know coming up and Matthew like you said you're kind of you know distantly related to uh, Tarabi Najad that was like pretty cool for me like being being Persian I you know I got that textbook I'm like man like one of the top guys in the world doing this is like really- yeah the, the only difference between Mark and I is I found path as a pulp too long he likes reading Mark yeah and I had a you know a bias towards principles and practice of endodontics so. That's yeah. probably the only textbooks I read more than once um, during my undergrad years. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So like, before we get into the clinical stuff, uh, I guess we'll just talk about a little bit about, you know, your advice for new grads, people listening who've been working for maybe a couple of years, uh, who might be considering, you know, is it the right time to specialize, you know, where the, you know, the trends in dentistry are kind of going. So what's your, what's your advice that you would give to someone right now who's thinking about it, you know, be it endo or another specialty, whether it's the right at the moment? Yeah, so my advice is um, a mentor is very important. And sometimes I find new grads or just about to graduate final years um, be a little bit picky about where they go in terms of distance from where they live. And my opinion is you go where the mentor is. In fact, if you do travel to places like Dubbo or places that might not have – um, they, they may not have as many dentists and as many competition, you get to do more and get your hands dirty. So yeah. apart from, look, it's, as I said, for me, it was more, I did one thing a lot more and I started to like it. So I'm sure if I was doing another procedure a lot, for example, veneers, which I never liked, <laughs> I'm the same as Mark, I, was never, I never had an eye for cosmetics. But even if I was doing that a lot and I did courses, then I did more of it, then I did more courses. I think I would have probably developed a liking towards that. So I think go where the mentor is willing to teach you. Um, they're not, I suppose some of them, are, you're there and they expect you to bill a lot, you know, or they might expect you to just do the simple stuff like be a perfect artist. Yeah. I think you should go where you can get your hands dirty. And this often with a new graduate means you have to travel to places where, um, you know, there's a, the dentistry is a, uh, not as competitive. 
yeah. and the market in Sydney, for example, a lot of them, a lot of the new grads or final years are asking me. They just got their um, little profile. <laughs> um, this is me. Um, I'm looking for a job type thing. Yeah. They're, they're already, they're already all that all that up ready. And they're about to finish, and I'm like, well, you know, I think you should go out into the country and gain some experience from people that have got more time for you or older guys that really want to teach you. It doesn't necessarily mean what they teach you is the latest, greatest technology, right? Yeah. Uh, but it just means that you get your hands dirty, you get to see a lot of cases. Then you can do courses and, as Mark said, visit, you know, a local specialist or travel to, to, to sit with specialists that are willing to let you go through. So I, I get one to two um, under, undergrads visiting my practice per week. Sometimes I've got two on the same day yeah. um, visiting. And I, I take them through consultation, the art of consultation, which I learned a lot with Mark. You know, <laughs> Being there, I sort of improved on. I think Mark's the guy when it comes to consults. He's amazing when it comes to writing notes. So I hope um, he can give us a little bit of his insight on for that. Sure. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, look, for me, it was more being involved, you know, both hands-on as much as I could, courses. Even I turned up to journal clubs and the university level, and I, I sort of sat at even programs with uh, orthodontics with Prof Ali. Um, I, I went to their seminars. I got up in the morning at 7.30 a.m., and I went there, and I was there late night. Uh, I had the privilege to do that because I was at the university level. So I was working with some of the specialists. We didn't have endodontics, so I ended up visiting Loma Linda a lot um, at the start. And I watched my uncle work, you know, Mahmoud. Yeah. He works. He used to work very fast, a different style of endodontics that you wouldn't be able to imagine in Australia. Yeah. So he would have 12 patients seen within three hours, but a lot wow. of his hygienists and we do the anesthetics to cone fit films to temporization to irrigation like he, you know he would just work like musical chairs he'd have six or five people and he would go from one chair to the other like around yeah. so i watched that you know that was different i sat there in general clubs i watched people access teeth i even accessed my first tooth in my second year from memory uh when um i was just learning perio like second yeah. year dance i you know, I sort of was keen to learn a bit more. So I, uh, during the holidays, I visited um, different um, places and I was I was in Loma Linda, like accessing the tooth, a lower premolar, I still remember. And and, yeah. and a postgrad was, uh, you know, it's actually cool. <laughs> so like at, at the end of it, look, what I'm saying really in simple terms, if you love something and you do more of it, you're going to love it more and uh, you'll find your passion. And um, I still, you know, I, I, if I go back, I'll go the same. Path, so I think I'll always, all I was doing. Yep. Yeah. What about you, Mark? Any advice around that topic for, for new grads? Uh, so you mean for new grads, for, the, or for new grads considering going into considering going into specializing? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Medi said it the first time, getting a mentor, but Medi focused more on getting a mentor that's a general practitioner, which is great. You need to have a good for sure. practitioner yeah. mentor because if you have one, like, for example, I normally say it's about extractions. If you have a mentor that doesn't do difficult extractions, then I guarantee you will never do surgical extractions yourself. All it takes yeah. another year or two, and then all of a sudden you, you'll lose the hand skills, you'll lose the confidence, and you're never going to do it again. So you need to have a mentor that's willing to let you actually do whatever it is that you're interested in. Um, but having said that, you also need to start small. I know a lot of new graduates seem to... I think that once you've graduated, you know, my certificate allows me to do everything. So I'm going to do 
everything. Like I'm going to take out an impacted lower eight, very first time I get a chance. I'm going to do a molar endo, very first endo I get. And it just doesn't work that way. To get good at it, you've got to build up to it. So um, yeah. I normally say that tackle the easier stuff first so you build up confidence, not just in yourself, but also in the muscle memory from the clinic you're working in because every clinic's a little bit different, you know, different setup, everything else. You're also uh, building the confidence that your boss will have in you and thinking that you're not hopeless because if you take hard cases at the start and you screw them up, they're going to start thinking you're hopeless. If you do a bunch of really straightforward cases and smash them home, they're going to be thinking, well, okay, it was a bit hard, a bit more than you could bite off, but you know what, you'll get there. So my advice if you start out is whatever the cases that you are interested in, pros, endo, perio, if you really like perio, I guess, um, <laughs> you know, um, keep a look, right? Have your own personal That's a good tip. of those cases so that you can see your own progression over time and you can actually objectively see where can you improve and where can you not improve. Um, and rather than focusing on time, because a lot of new graduates, I think, focus on time where they're like, oh, it's taking me two hours to do this and my boss does it in half an hour. Whatever. The time, it comes. Speed comes with experience and practice. And that just takes time. You can't, you can't rush it. Uh, focus on things more like for your endos. Am I getting to length? How accurate are my films? How accurate is my restorative? How's the obturation look? Um, am I breaking instruments? Am I not breaking instruments? Um, you know, how do things go from an outcome point of view? How hard were they to isolate? All that sort. You keep a track of all of that and you try and see the areas that you feel that you could improve faster or you think you're going well or areas where you need to ask someone that knows this stuff questions. And that is actually the best way that you can learn is by keeping your own little personal logbook. And then when you see the progression, you can be like, okay, I think I can now tackle some harder stuff because I've been able to do X, Y, Z. It's also good if your boss ever says, what made you think you could do that? And you're like, well, <laughs> I've got this. You've got the logbook behind I got, you. I got a little logbook that I keep for my own purposes. Of my <laughs> um, but the other part as well is having a mentor in the specialist realm is also very important too uh, yeah. because I've got uh, uh, quite a few um, dentists now that used to be students who during my post-grad days, they had an interest in endo, they'd ask me questions, they'd shoot me messages on Facebook, SMS. I get probably three or four messages a day um, from people asking me endo questions just in general. Um, they can be anything from a here's a film, what's going on, to just a really esoteric question about endodontics in general. Yeah. Um, and having that sort of mentorship relationship can really help you improve as a general dentist, but also improve your love for a specialty. Uh, and sometimes the advice will be, look, that's above, that, that, that's above your pay grade. You've got to refer that. And um, it's not trying to fish for referrals. It's just a matter of that's the appropriate option. But sometimes uh, my view is I've had a lot of situations where a dentist has messaged or called me and Five minutes of my time can save them a good week or two of stress and a whole lot of sleepless nights, you know. Um, and sometimes all it takes is speaking to an expert and saying, this has happened, oh, my God, what, what do I do? And someone like me or Medi or, or whatever specialist you're using saying, it's fine. Not the end of the world. These things happen. Just this is what you do and it'll it'll get managed. And um I think that's actually that's really, really helpful from a personal and a professional development point of view because what a lot of people forget is the fact that dentistry is a very thankless job. 
Uh, yeah, for sure. You can have nine cases in a row that go well, but you have one patient with an MO with post-op sensitivity and the patient thinks that you're the worst person on earth and they're on the phone every day abusing you and saying you're a piece of garbage and they want their money back and they're going to sue you. It just takes one patient to ruin your entire day and make you think, why are you doing this job? So yeah. You need to all have that not just professional support but also that emotional and personal support to remind you that it's not the end of the world when these sorts of things happen because we all get them. You know, yeah. Every single specialist, every single guru, every single expert has those cases that make us want to lose sleep and just leave the profession altogether. So you need to get some personal and professional support. Um, the other thing as well, if you want to do a specialty, in my opinion, is save yeah, financially, save, 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 save. You've, you've got to, um, you know, you can still have your smashed avocado here and there, but you've really got to make sure that you save a lot of money because yeah. you're going to earn nothing in postgrad or next to nothing in postgrad. And anything you do earn is going to get chewed up by what you're doing in postgrad anyway. So, save yeah. money because you're going to need it and you're going to chew into your savings during your postgraduate days. It's just a fact of life. Um, you can't get away from it. Um, and then when you're in post-grad, make connections with people, make connections with some other specialties, try and learn from other specialties as well because it will help you. As well. with Endo, we do a lot of stuff with Perio and Pros and that gives you a lot of perspective of what's out there. Um, but just also take the time to teach. You really don't know things until you have to teach it or with us with our lecturing. That's until right. you stand up in front of an audience and you start talking about something and someone asks you a question, well, you don't really know it until you actually in front of a group of people and not sound like you're fishing. Yeah, so, that's great tips. I think, um, you know, the, the few big pointers there is definitely mentorship. And, you know, I've been doing this podcast. I've been talking to a lot of dentists who are doing a lot of great things. And that's like a universal one that you hear all the time is you need that good mentor from the start to kind of guide you and show you the way. The The tip of, you know, starting slow and kind of building up is one that I wish I kind of learned a bit earlier and, you know, like, the, you know, the, you, you, you hear a lot of people say, you know, make sure your first couple of cases are slam dunks to kind of get your confidence up and get your skills up. And, uh, you know, for me, like personally, I know a lot of other people are the same, but you come out of school, you think you're on top of the world and you think you're very, very confident. It's like that uh, Dunning-Kruger effect of like, you don't know what you don't know. And, and then you get stuck and your, your first endo goes, you're short or you, you know, you don't get to lengthen, you're not happy with it or your first crown or your first extraction takes longer. So those are all great points that you said to really take your time build it up slowly, make sure you got the right mentors in place to kind of guide you through those progressions. Having those relationships with the specialists as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably add one, one more sure. thing, um, Omid. Um, I think gone are the days where a specialist um, communicates by referral letters. Um, I mean, some specialists still do that, uh, maybe the older specialists. Nowadays, you've got, you know, we're, we're communicating right now, obviously, by iPhone. I think for me, I spend a lot of time discussing cases and i even give my phone number to dentists um if they wish to have it when it comes to trauma because yeah. with trauma for example i just had one guy message me um over the weekend because they saw a really bad trauma on saturday really really heavy trauma abos teeth and root fractures and uh, you know extrusive injuries and everything yeah. In one, so they messaged me and they called me straight after straight as soon as the patient's there. I managed to um, get on the phone 
and um, just explain how I would manage it. I saw the radiographs, um, you know, the, I was on iPhone, you know, could, yeah. they, they just gave me a little look at it. Diagnosis, trauma, multidisciplinary cases really mean that there is Facebook private messaging on Facebook and there is like um, gone are days of referral letters and, oh, can you please let me know what you think? I think phone calls and little chat and regular discussion meetings with your local specialists. Um, we do, um, for example, I know Ben Lee. Um, he has his study club and um, he, yeah. he meets up with, um, you know, his own private, you know, just very top referring dentist um, on, a, on a monthly basis. So this is the future. The future is communication and never treat the tooth or the situation in isolation. Know that we're here to help you guys. And as Mark said correctly, just a five-minute chat changes, you know, the outcome. And for us, it's about the patient at the end. It's about you guys communicating with us. So this is, I think, very important, communication, communication. And as you go even through postgrad, I've got people sending me radiographs and going, you know, I had this case, or what do you think about that? They've got other opinions from their mentors, but they might want to have another opinion from somebody who's a clinician um, yeah. in some situations. Well, no, that's great. That's great advice because, you know, even with like Facebook and Instagram and social media, it's much easier for dentists and specialists to kind of connect and kind of share those things with each other. I was talking to a prosthodontist a few weeks ago and I was, I was telling him that referral system seems very archaic of like writing a letter attaching your radiograph, sending it off. You're not sure where they're at with the process. So have, making that communication, like you said, easier and having more feedback more, more quickly and back and forth, I think is, it makes a big difference in the patient care as well. Well, Liam, um, there's something I'll add to that as well. And this is more of a personal thing more than the professional thing. But if you plan to yeah. in postgrad, get married before you enter postgrad. <laughs> make sure they're committed no 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 because once you get into postgrad you meet so many more people your guest list is going to spiral out just say, oh, okay. <laughs> so that's, that's another way uh postgrads lose money huh? the wedding costs go up uh the, the, the dates the dates during postgrad are expensive you know yeah uh, i could only afford soup well, they would order the barramandi at like $40 a, yeah. a dish. <laughs> so, so tell me a little bit about, you know, modern day endo. Obviously, a lot of us new guys, you know, we come through dental school and we get the basic introduction to rotary and stuff. There's so much going on with like, you know, comb beam and, and new rotary technologies and diagnostics. Obviously, we don't have to get like too in-depth, but if you just kind of give us like some cool things that are emerging that you're seeing in your field that are like kind of cutting edge, just for a general dentist to kind of be aware of that even they even exist, that'd be cool. Yeah, so that's me. Yeah, maybe, maybe you started. Both of, yeah, you can yeah. both have them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mark will cover whatever I miss. Um, look, I think um, I think uh, uh, keep things in balance. So whatever you learned in um, um, at school, uh, slowly develop and learn. Um, don't just because the cone beam is out there, you know, do cone beam and not do periodical radiographs or check your restorative margins with bi-wings um, because that's a definite no-no. Uh, you come out and you go, oh, this is good technology, but then you haven't been taught how to use it. So yeah. being taught how to use a comb beam, read a comb beam well, what type of comb beam to take is important. But certainly, if you do have comb beam technology, I see a lot more um, in many situations, but I don't overdo it either. Like I don't start to comb beam everybody, every single case that walks through, young and old. You know, <laughs> you got to keep the relative dosage right, you know, with kids especially, less, you know, they've got the relative... Um, uh, 
uh, those is obviously important. Um, and I think we're overdoing it sometimes with technology. Yeah. So keep it in balance. Um, ask the specialists when they use a chrome beam and for what situations and then uh, go from there and do courses whereby you can actually learn how to use or read a chrome beam properly. Yeah. Um, that's, that's my first advice. So definitely chrome beam technology is good because uh, it tells you more about uh, strange anatomy. If, if you're struggling with a tooth, you can at least take chromium see where you are and find the calcified canal. In some trauma cases, um, very useful in finding out exactly what type of trauma you have. Uh, you might miss stuff with two-dimensional for sure. Okay, so that's one thing. Second thing, I think with um, the world, in my opinion, of agitation, agitation of the irrigant, yeah. um, there are all these new devices coming out to make your life easier. So it's not about the old-fashioned, okay, I've got to go to you know, this size and this shape. Um, I think nowadays you probably can be a little bit more conservative in certain circumstances and see how it goes. Like, you know, I'm always a fan of, to be honest, medicating and waiting. I think it's better patient management. I also can see signs of healing. Yeah. And so sometimes these days, uh, it's not like when I first came out. So when I first came out of Melbourne, I probably would go every single powder canal to a size 60. Like it was just a standard 6004. I got taught 6004. So I kept the flare um, pretty small. That was good. It minimizes risk of fracture. We know that. Um, some of the old step back techniques, the gate, Gates Glidden days, sizes four, you know, you just really have a 10 or 12 flare. So you keep your flare up the top small and you go to large apical sizes. But then over time, I think what's changed in my practice is I've now gone to. Uh, in calcified canals in um, some shapes, for example, the MB2 canal that's always calcified. And, um, uh, when you look at the root and cross section, it looks quite um, narrow. I'm actually going to a 25. I might even use um, a very, very, very fine tapered um, and keep it to a minimum at uh, the taper. And I think it's because I'm able to agitate the irrigant better and I'm using better agitation technology. And there's future, you know, the future. Um, if we can afford it, you know, the $80,000, you know, gentle wave might become more affordable, whereby yeah. you can have tinier holes in teeth and you're able to disinfect. So I think the world of disinfection, the world of agitation of the irrigant is the big world right now in endodontics. Um, we're moving away as much uh, from calcium hydroxide or um, antibacterial uh, medicaments, um, although I still use them as a space filler and I still, you know, try to get them in the right spot using Navitips. Navitip technology is pretty cool. Okay. Uh, from ultra then. Um, I think that we can get tinier, finer needles and we can get them deeper and uh, we're able to get their uh, medica medication into where it's necessary. So that's, I think, uh, for me, the big changes, the big changes, plus one other change is saving pulps. Um, you know, I, I think um, pulp is resilient and we can, in many cases, not extirpate it. We work with the pulp we have and we use bioceramics and you know, MTA-type materials to yeah. preserve the pulp properly and let that root grow in a young patient, for example, and let that thickness happen. So I think that's another area, you know, with, you know, cells and stem cells and, you know, the future with uh, preserving pulps and um, revascularizing teeth and teeth that are even infected, we can give them a better chance at regrowing, if you like, or, you know, getting them to thicken and strengthen. That's my part. Okay. Mike, uh, anything, anything to add? Um, so I'll add a couple of things on the medis first. So um, first of all, the, the, the revitalization, vital pulp therapy stuff with 
uh, MTA, some of the new bioceramics coming onto the market, I think is absolutely sensational. Uh, I yeah. think that sphere is only going to in- improve as the years go on with better materials. Um, I don't imagine we'll ever get to the point that we have personalised dentistry, like they got personalised medicine, where it's like this this medicament is special to your uh, pulpiome, let's call it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I do think that that space is really worth watching because Medi and I have had a lot of cases of, we're talking six, seven, eight-year-olds where they've had just bought out with caries, but you don't want to extract it because they're young. Um, and you just do a, a full pulpotomy on them as a temporary measure and yeah. the roots continue to grow and the tooth sort of stays there and the aim is just to lock it into their head till they're 25, really. It's a temporary, yeah. <laughs> but it's better than the alternative. I know if it was my kid, I'd, I'd give that a crack, so I think it's great. Um, the other thing as well, when you talk about CBCT, this is probably another advice for new graduates. So um, there's lots of people that are doing in-house CBCTs and they're great, in-house CBCTs, you know, so it's, against a technological advance. The problem yeah. is, and this is something a lot of new grads are, don't quite realise, you take the scan, you are legally obligated to report on that scan and to note anything abnormal on the scan. So if you don't know the normal anatomy of the sinus cavity or if you've done a full head CT that's got part of the ear involved or the cervical spine and you miss there, you are liable. You are liable for anything you miss there. It's no different to, I remember um, back in my, one of my very first weeks of undergrad with um, Pam Craig, who I don't think at the University of Melbourne anymore, um, saying when you look at a scan, uh, she had an OPG, she's like, look everywhere but where you're meant to look first. <laughs> yeah. And with a CBCT, it, there's just so much more you need to look at. So if you don't have the actual training to look at it, yeah, you're going to be fine probably nine out of ten times. But that tenth time you're screwed yeah. and it's going to happen. There will be, uh, there will be some sort of litigation that will happen at some point in the future that will set the standard that uh-oh, we probably should have been doing this a lot better the whole time, but get ahead of that curve because patients are complaining more. Patients are more aware of their rights, which brings me into what I think that um, is sort of the, the emerging technologies is the internet. Patients today have access to so much information than they had in the past. Um, not just good information, but things like root cause, the Netflix topic. <laughs> yeah. um, for a while there, I think every endodontist in the country was having one or two patients a week giving them headaches, wanting to, you know, wanting to tell us that we're cancer-causing monsters that are just in it for money. And uh, I'm, I'm still getting that, Mark, by the way. I'm still <laughs> yeah. Honestly. Um, yeah. And... Being aware of the fact that dentistry, like all aspects of medicine and life, there's there's certain things that are out there on the internet uh, that are gaining traction, that are, that that people want to believe, and they're going to ask you questions about it, or they're going to hassle you about it. And some of them get really, really aggressive, and you need to have it figured out already what you're going to do when a patient comes in like that. And everyone everyone reacts differently. Um, I used to try and have a reasoned conversation with them about what the evidence is and uh, you know, and how the fact that there's no actual evidence for, for what they're talking about. Um, but that doesn't tend to end well. So uh, now I just tell people that there is no evidence, but you're welcome to believe what you believe. And if you really do think that what I'm doing causes cancer, then by all means make a complaint to the board or tell your holistic dentist to make a complaint to the dental board. <laughs> And they don't because their holistic dentist knows that it actually isn't, isn't the way it is. 
So being aware that you are going to come across certain personalities that are going to have this in the back of their mind, but also knowing that you need to know what you're talking about because there'll be a lot more patients that actually know about endo and pros and perio and maxvac and everything else. So uh, gone are the days where the patient walks in, they sit down, you say, open up, I'm doing a root canal treatment and you do it. You <laughs> yeah. spend time talking to the patient and giving them the respect they deserve so that they can make an autonomous decision. Um, so that, that's sort of a side thing. Um, yeah. The one thing that I've noticed, which I think is great, is the improvement in, um, I guess, the affordability of, my, of um, dental operating microscopes. There's a lot more GPs now that are using the operating. That's a good one, yeah. And uh, I know I know some GPs that are using it, and they've said that they've noticed a, a vast difference in the outcomes and qualities of their treatments, even doing things like crown preps under, under a microscope, which I can't imagine ever doing. <laughs> but now microscopes aren't, you know, they don't cost the same as a small house anymore. Uh, you can actually, <laughs> you can actually get microscopes for some pretty decent prices, and it, I think it just improves your, your treatment outcomes. And I think that's where um, the tide is turning for people that want to do more complex treatment. They're going to be using scopes, even if it's under you know low magnification on a microscope, yeah. they'll make a significant difference. So that's sort of where I see the tide going from a practical point of view with endo. Um, you mentioned from a diagnostic point of view diagnostics sort of hasn't changed all that much in my opinion i mean it's really still back back to the basics you know do don't cut corners still listen to the patient still do all your proper tests don't try and skip ahead um i mean the only thing really i say is that cracks find new and imaginative ways to make our lives difficult uh yeah. they're always a pain to diagnose properly uh but I've been seeing a lot more, even in the last five years as a specialist, a lot more patients with preferred pain from temporomandibular disorder. Okay. Um, I don't know what it is, but there's a lot more people out there with jaw joint problems, muscular problems that are that, that are referred to the mouth. So I don't know whether it's a societal thing or whether I just be having a real bad one of it. But... Um, but, but yeah, just knowing your oral med stuff, it, it's probably a good idea to at least know when not to pick up the drill. And now a short ad break from our sponsors. Are you looking for a hands-on course to complement your current CPD plan? Henry Schein offers 150 CPD courses every year in all topics, including endodontics, orthodontics, surgery, infection control, and practice marketing. To view the current offerings, head over to henryshine.com.au to check out all the CPD courses available for the upcoming months. And as a special offer for my listeners, they are offering a 5% discount on all courses run by Henry Shine using the promo code PODCAST. Again, that's promo code PODCAST for a 5% discount on all CPD courses run by Henry Shine Australia. Head over there, check out their courses, and I hope to see you guys there. Yeah. So I was going to ask one kind of like philosophical question and then we'll be mindful of your time as well. So we'll get into a quick clinical kind of scenario and then we can chat about your courses and stuff because I really, really want to get to that as well. Cause I know um, you guys offer a lot of great courses that are really useful for a lot of new grads. So we'll give you the kind of the platform to talk about that. But in terms of the philosophical, philosophical question, you know, I, you know, I came to your course a little bit and you had that great segment on, you know, the consent process and not to say that it's, it invokes fear for like new grads and stuff, but you know, as a new guy working out there, this fear of like litigation, like hanging over your head personally. And then, and I have friends that are in the same boat. We talk about this is it kind of weighs heavily on us in terms of our job satisfaction, in terms of like burnout and 
and overall stress. How can we, one, be mindful of it and try and you know, cover ourselves and protect ourselves, but also like not work day to day from like a place of fear of like anything I touch and do is like a potential lawsuit. Like, I think that that's not a healthy mind space to kind of be in. So like, what's your advice around that? Uh, I'll, I'll take this one first, Mehdi. Uh, no, go for it. Yeah. So um, first off, the disclaimer, not a lawyer. I don't work in the complaints and claims handling processes. So everything that I say is just based on my experience as an endodontist and working with patients and dentists and all of that. Um, I just finished a Master's of Health and Medical Law at the University of Melbourne, so I've got some extra little legal qualification, but I am not a legal practitioner, so bear that in mind with what I yeah. talk about. Um, so first off, I, I think practicing defensively as a dentist is a recipe for disaster for yourself because you, you're going to be doing nothing but scaling cleans and you won't do any of the hard scaling cleans, you just do the basic ones. <laughs> be scared to pick up a drill and do anything. So at the end yeah. of the day, the majority of what you're doing is probably fine from a technical point of view. It comes down to treatment planning and it comes down to communication. So uh, when I sit down with a patient and do a consult with them, I spend a lot of time talking to them because it's not just me trying to figure out what their problem is. They're trying to decide whether they're willing to let me treat them. But I'm also determining whether I should be treating this patient as well, whether mm -hmm. I can live up to what their expectations are, whether they're reasonable or unreasonable, can I actually live up to them? Um, and can I actually do what I think is the best job for this patient? So if you don't spend enough time with a patient actually chatting to them, you're not going to pick up on all those signs that you shouldn't touch the case, which is why I say new grads, you start easy, you start small, and you build yourself up for that confidence level so you know how to deal with it because complications happen. If you have yeah. a complication in a relatively straightforward case, they are relatively straightforward to deal with. If you do a harder case and you have a complication, first off, you're not experienced enough to know how to deal with all those complications. But secondly, complicated cases get complicated complications. Yeah. You can't say that three times fast. <laughs> so it's mostly just spending a lot of time actually talking to your patients and communicating with them because first off, from a consent point of view, you're doing the right thing. You're protecting yourself because you are actually taking the time to run the patient through everything that's relevant to them in this case. Uh, you're letting them make a choice. You never make the choice for the patient. If they say, what, what should I do? Say, well, I can't tell you. That's not, my, that's not my place to tell you. If they say to you, what would you do? Remind them the fact that you are biased. You financially benefit if they proceed with treatment, so you are the wrong person to ask. I tell people yeah. that I'm a root canal hammer and your tooth is a lucrative nail. Yeah. So you can't make the decision for them. You give them all the information. And honestly, the best thing that a patient can do is say, let me think about it. They go home and they come back another day. So don't be so quick to get someone to do treatment immediately on the day. And let's imagine you did do something and a complication does happen. Most of the time, complaints are made due to a breakdown in communication, whether that is in the informed consent process or after the complication has happened. So typically what I see when I, when we see endo patients and some of them are angry and they're typically angry because something's gone wrong in that communication pathway where I wasn't warned that an instrument could break. Well, they can and they, and they do, unfortunately, it's just part of life. It's not negligent. It's just part of life, uh, which is why you warn them beforehand. Your indemnity will thank you for warning them before. Mm -hmm. um, or they're upset because of the financial part of it or, or some other aspect to it. So if a patient has post-operative pain, 
you don't fob them off. You offer to bring them in and see them for five minutes just in between patients or at lunchtime or you offer to, you know, if it is a swelling or what have you, you send them a script. You don't fob a patient off with their concerns. You keep the lines of communication open. If something goes wrong, be quick to apologise. And I have found from experience, be quick to hand some money back. So uh, what, I, what I will see is patients will come in with a broken instrument and the patient will say to me, I've already paid X amount, $100 up till now, and I've got a broken instrument, and now I've got to pay you all this money. I don't think that's fair. And, I mean, well, I can't really comment on that because yeah. relative. I mean, I'm, I, I'm external here. I'm just I'm the guy that's meant to be helping you out with your tooth. Um, when I was a general dentist, the recommendation was made to me by the endodontist I used to refer to was in a situation that um, reimburse the patient for every cent they've paid for your root canal treatment. Yes, technically you shouldn't have to because it's a procedural fee, blah, blah, blah. But honestly, goodwill costs a lot more than sleepless nights. Yeah. Um, give them their money back um, and offer to do them a deal on their crown. So typically what I used to do is I'd say, right, the cost difference between our root canal treatment and the endodontist is 800 bucks. Your crown is 1500 What I'll do when you come back to me for the crown, I'll do your crown for 700 And that way you are not more out of pocket than you would have been if you had gone to the endodontist on day dot. Yeah. And That's a good point. that tends to keep people really happy because they most of them can sort of figure out, hey, that makes sense to me. You know, and it also makes the patient feel like you're looking after them. What you don't want to do is you break an instrument, the sweat starts running and start freaking out and telling the patient that I'm going to look after you forever and I'm going to give you your money back and I'm going to pay for your endo and I'm going to pay for your crown and I'm going to pay for your implant and I'm going to pay for your kid's education. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've got to, you've got to temper it a, a little bit and figure out in advance how you're going to deal with those complications. And honestly, you do that and most of your complaints will go away. The complaints that are going to cause your headaches where you end up up in front of APRA or uh, with a sort of severe litigation is if you do something beyond the realms of what a professional should be doing. Or if you have some serious complication from a serious procedure, like um, you have an endo and the endo fails and the patient's angry to complain, realistically, what's the worst they can get from you if you've done good quality work to the standard of care within your realm of within your realm of capabilities really the, the most they can get is what money back for the endo that you've done maybe the implant if something went wrong um full disclosure is a really good thing because the hard part i find with with new graduates and dentists in general is they don't like telling patients that something went wrong yeah so um what i've learned from from experience and i learned this from the max fact is you always start the conversation positive you always say uh, thanks for sitting through that. Look, the procedure went really well, except in one of your roots, one of the instruments has has broken off. Um, look, it's not the end of the world. It's not going to cause you any pain. It's just something that's happened. Um, I'm going to get you sent off to a real good specialist that can get it managed. And as a gesture of goodwill, I'm not going to charge you for what we've done up till now. Um, and after you've seen the specialist X, Y, Z, whatever, like you, you'll have your spiel for whatever the case may be. Yeah. Um, and you always start with the positive. Yeah. It went really well. But when I was trying to find one of your little root canals in there, uh, you know, made a little pinpoint communication between the root and the bone, which isn't the end of the world. I'm going to send you off to someone that can fix that up. No problem. 
Yeah. You know, what you don't say is that I went through the side of your tooth in the wrong direction and now <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. So communication, honestly, is the big thing. There's, That's a great tip. You, you don't tend to learn this in dental school. You tend to learn it from your mentors and you can get some really bad learning from it. Um, so just be mindful that pay, being open with your patient, disclosing something that's gone wrong, um, you're not admitting fault per se. You're not saying, well, I've said sorry and I said this happened, therefore they'll sue me. It'll look a hell of a lot worse when they see someone like me and I have to tell them there's a broken instrument in there. And I've had that happen. I've had with yeah. purse, I've had with broken instruments. I've had, uh, you know, we have patients who get referred sometimes and the dentist is like, don't tell them the file is in there. And it's like, well, hell, I've got to. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's my thing. Mehdi? Yeah, look, I, I, the, the, I, just to add to that really is um, time at the start is important. Um, even if you don't have time at the start, um, create time at the next visit to discuss um, the procedure that you may be thinking of or you've started, for example, endodontic therapy. Give the patient some information because the ADA has all these pamphlets um, so they can even walk away with it and go and read it if you don't have time and it's an emergency. Yeah. So when they come back the next visit, you can spend time. You don't hurry at the start. And you can discuss um, all the procedure, all the possible complications. Because although we don't worry about a separated instrument, right, and we, we often can manage it, it's still important you tell them about that small risk of whatever it is, 3%. It's still important when they leave your practice, you tell them about the 3% risk of flare-up. You know, the post-op calls I found where my staff do are important because it just means better patient management and care. Yeah. So I think one thing is time. Don't hurry at the start. Um, I learned this from prosthodontists like Ben who spend 90 minutes for a consult and it's still not enough and they get the patient back for another 90 minutes. So sometimes <laughs> there are patient factors and you're trying to explain something to them and, and um, it drew, throughout the process of time, really, and this is something um, Mark knows quite well and I've sort of listened to Mark about this, you find out the patient's personality. So with, I'm not saying that now I still don't get it wrong and I don't dig myself a hole, but you find out what type of patient you're dealing with, whether old or young patients are different, some are more type A, some have high expectations. Uh, some obviously are, uh, are very okay patients. They're the, you know, the patients that um, understand and uh, are less likely to get upset if something fails or goes wrong throughout the process. So be aware of the red flags at the start. The more time you give yourself to get to know this patient at the start, um, but develop some personal, I think, you know, like personal relationship really means you write in your notes that this patient I don't know, told me that they watched the rugby and they watched, you know, the All Blacks lose or win. You know, then you go, okay, well, they like the All Blacks or not. He gets, you know, Mark's all about basketball, so he loves the, you know, he's looking forward to the probably the Australian and the US um, uh, matchup, right, yeah. Mark, <laughs> in Melbourne. Uh, so, so the reality is everybody's different, okay? Um, and that also brings me on to another point. Um, in line with, you know, I think the, the, the word that I use sometimes, which is under-promise and over-deliver, is something called herodontics. 
And I really wanted to touch on this Herodonti For sure. aspect. I know that um, Professor Torbinijan on the 21st um, Saturday morning in Sydney will cover this part, which is the patient factors and why we do sometimes endodontic surgery or root resections or even autotransplantations that are, say, a dying field or they're not there anymore because everybody does implants. Well, what we're seeing really is that we can get, you know, failures even with implants over time and the, the literature is changing the pendulum is swinging the way of saving teeth again so we can save teeth we can be more conservative as saving them and we can even push the boundaries and do herodontics there's nothing wrong with doing herodontics as long as the patient is on board yeah i always tell the patient and i select my patients and i always make the example of this plastic surgeon who has a 40-50% success rate because the other 50% of patients die. At the end of the day, it's a tooth. We're talking about a tooth here. The worst case is extracted. So don't be – I always tell – I've added this to my um, um, consult, Mark. You'd be glad to know. I don't know if you agree or not. And I'll let you – you know, you're the consult, man. You know, you're, you're the guy who communicates much better than anybody else I know um, in terms of, like, you know, I watch my peers, older and younger. I think Mark's really good at his note writing. We read his notes and we're like, wow – yeah. He hasn't missed a thing. He hasn't missed a thing every single time. I realize he hasn't <laughs> missed a thing. So he's just top top notch. But what I'd say is right at the end of my conversation with a patient that I've selected to do some compromised tooth, you know, uh, decided to try to save it. Of course, I'm going to assess it well. I'm going to follow stripping everything out and Paul Abbott's way of assess the tooth properly, remove everything and have a look at it before you decide again on whether it's worth saving or not. Um, but don't be – I'd say this to the patient – don't be upset when this fails. That's a great line. I've already, I've already told you this now, that we're going down a path that's somewhat more unpredictable. I'll do everything I can to the best of my ability with the rest of you know, the profession, like you know, say the restorative dentist or the prosthetist, to save this tooth. Um, but at the end of the day, when it fails, don't be upset because we've told you from the start that we're going down a path of more, you know, that, that could be more challenging. That could be a bit more unpredictable than an average case. Um, but I think I, I save teeth these days and I push boundaries sometimes. And I know, Mark, sometimes we run through cases like, Mitty, what are you doing? I love, I love healing. I love the human body and what it shows me sometimes. And I selected an old patient, especially the 80-year-olds, you know, the 75-year-olds, where the life expectancy might be different. Some herodontics sometimes. I, I do save the compromised tooth, and I love seeing it working some patients, and I love keeping their teeth because also an old patient, when they lose a tooth, they may not have the means or the, and they may not want, wish to replace it yeah. with an expensive option, um, and they might not want to wear dentures. It might be not socially. Even at that age group, acceptable might be depressing for them. So I push boundaries. I save teeth. Um, I've also seen the literature, and I just want to come out and say one final thing. The literature tells us that um, implants are great, but um, between six to ten years, forty-six percent of them need maintenance. This is the best available, you know, the systematic reviews, and the success rate in some areas is higher than others. And in the upper sinus region, the upper seven, we argue till the cows come home. We have, you know, multiple specialists in one room saying, "Let's save the upper seven or six. That area, the success rate's lower. It's in the seventies, high seventies, low eighties. It's not like that." Like people think you place the implant, it's going to last forever. So you just go with the patient. You understand the patient. And if I, I'd rather send the patient away and say, there's the door. 
go to the older endodontist or go to a, a specialist and have an implant if I find the red flags. And I want Mark just to maybe add to the red flags part because I think yeah, that'd be very great. good explain. Some, uh, some red flags that you've picked up from your time. That'd be, that'd be awesome, Mark. So pretty much, um, well, the first off is if the patient's got a history of suing or making complaints against their previous practitioner, it's probably a good idea that you don't see them. Um, yes. That's just, look, past behavior is the biggest predictor of future behavior. Yeah. So they might have had a legitimate reason for complaining against their previous practitioner. Um, but if you're going to be doing something complex, especially, it's probably best you send it off to somebody else to do it unless you are super confident in your ability and you're willing to deal with the complications that are involved. Um, they say other red flags I've had with patients is uh, over-argumentative patients. If I say to a patient that, look, um, key root canal treatment, I'm going to have to do this in multiple visits for whatever reason. Um, at the end, I'm going to put in a base, I'm going to put in a core, and I'm going to send you off to your general dentist for a crown. And if they say, no, you're going to do it in a single visit <laughs> and you're going to do the crown. And I'm like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> and if they keep arguing with you every step of the way and you're explaining how to do it, that's when you need to take a step back and say to the patient, uh, and this is what I say to patients, and I, and I do, I've got a very low threshold's the wrong, wrong term, but um, if I know that things are not going to go well with the patient, I, I stop it early before I've picked up a drill, if I can. Yeah. I just say the reality of what I can do and your expectations, they don't mesh, unfortunately. Um, and in those situations... I said, as a gesture of goodwill, I won't even charge you for today's consultation. Mm -hmm. So you've lost nothing for t but time for coming to see me. So uh, I'm happy to give you the details of another endodontist or endodontists that you can inquire with, or you can go back to your dentist and ask them for the details of another specialist. Um, and I, I found that that does mitigate a lot of problems. Another good rule of thumb is if you're dealing with a patient and you think to yourself, if something went wrong, I don't think I would be happy. I don't think I'd be capable of having a conversation with this person about it. That's another red flag because you can't guarantee what's going to happen. Uh, my advice is treat every single patient as if they're a, a personal injury lawyer specialising in dental malpractice claims. <laughs> and if you look at this particular patient and think if they were a malpractice lawyer, I wouldn't want to touch them, then you definitely probably shouldn't. I have worked on a dental malpractice lawyer in the past, actually. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been fun. <laughs> uh, I work on my patients as a um, very understanding human being. Um, but I've had other patients where just, yeah, you, you know when you're talking to them. Um, I've, I've had a few, and because of the fact that when I've shaved, I look like I'm 15. <laughs> me and I had this one woman um, that uh, Medi saw recently, um, and the whole time during the consultation, she'd interrupt me at every second sentence and say, you, you do know what you're doing, don't you? You, you, are, you, 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 are, you are a specialist, yes? You have been a dentist for a number of years, yes? You do know what you're doing, don't you? You've done this before. Yeah. About halfway through the chat, I just stopped and I said, look, um, I get it. I'm young. <laughs> young is relative, but I'm young. And it's obvious to me that you are uncomfortable with it. I don't take offence because there's no point taking offence to it, by the way. Everybody's opinion is their opinion, right? Yeah. I don't take offence to it. I'll get you seen by the most experienced person at our clinic 
and I'm not going to charge you for today for coming to see me and having this little chat. Um, <laughs> but in my, and, and this patient was like, no, no, we can continue. And I said, look, if something went wrong, would you believe that something went wrong because it was going to go wrong? Or would in the back of your mind, it would gnaw at you that it went wrong because I'm inexperienced. And she's like, okay, fair enough. Yeah. So yeah, sent her off to, to Medi and she was perfectly happy with Medi. <laughs> I think it's the gray hairs. Perfectly yeah. <laughs> happy with um, so that, that, that's another red flag. Uh, when you're doing the consult with somebody and if they, if they're not paying attention to you or if they seem like they're mocking, you know when you're talking to somebody and uh, they're just almost mocking you with their reactions rather than actually being engaged and listening. I've had somebody be on their phone while I'm talking to them about their consult. It's like, you, you're right there. And they're like, oh, yeah, but how much longer is this going to take? I'm like, well, this is an important conversation that we're having here. If you're yeah. a rush, you can leave and come back another day, but I'm still going to have this conversation with you. Yeah. Um, because you need to understand this. And if you're not going to, um, if you don't think that I'm the guy for the job or if you want to see someone that's not going to talk to you at all, then I'm not your guy. Yeah. You know, so um, it's just, th- those are those are some of the, the red flags. Um, a little a little red flag that I've got that it, it's not always perfect <laughs> indication. Um, so when I talk about broken instruments to patients, I, I say to every single patient, doesn't matter if it's a straightforward incisor or a curvy molar, I say, look, there's a possibility that one of the instruments can break and it's not the end of the world. They're not going to set off metal detectors at the airport. And if the patient cracks a smile yeah. or laughs, I'm like, okay. It'll be fine. <laughs> but if they're stone-faced when I say that, that tends to be an indication that I need to be a bit more wary of the personality that I'm communicating with. It's not always yeah. perfect because some people are so nervous in the dental chair, they just don't react. Um, but that tends to be a sign. Yeah. Later. No, that's really useful. A lot of practical tips in there. I think it's important to get these, you know, it's like that sixth sense uh, that you kind of develop over time as yeah. you're working a lot. You get to pick up, something's off about this person. I'm not sure if it's the right thing to actually start treatment. Um, and even so, like as a new grad, you there's even cases of, you know, you start a case and like immediately like, oh man, I shouldn't have started. Yeah. Like in your mind, you like right away, you're like that's, that was a bad decision and you're kind of, you're committed now, you're stuck, so you're, you're into it. Um, well, actually, no, what I'll mention for that, yeah. say that you're committed, you can always back out. <laughs> doesn't matter what procedure you're doing, you can always back out. So, um, I mean, Medi knows this. I paid my way through dental school playing poker, right? Yeah. <laughs> and there's something called sunk cost fallacy. Fallacy, yeah. yeah. You bet so much money into the pot that you're going to keep chasing and chasing, even though you know you're going to lose, but because you've done, you've gone so far. Yeah. Back out, fold your cards. If you're in the middle of a procedure and you're thinking, I shouldn't have started this. Stop. If it's an endo, endo's great. Medicate, cavit. Cavit is the world's best invention. Medicate, <laughs> cavit. I'm sorry, we can't continue. This is beyond my... Uh, and you, can, you say, this is how you say to them, I thought that this was within my capabilities to treat based on my assessment and my 2D examination of your films. Unfortunately, going in there, it's not. It's, it's harder than I expected. You need to see my colleague, a specialist, whatever, 
and it'll be so much better for you than if you keep going. Same goes for crown, same goes for surgeries, ortho, what have you. As soon as you realize you've got, you're going too far, pull out and pull out early because it's a lot easier to tell a patient now than it is when something else has happened. Yeah. I think, yeah, one line I use is before I do anything irreversible to like damage yes. anything, let me stop now and I'll send you off to someone. Yeah, and I think exactly, they appreciate exactly. that. Just yeah. always pull out early when you can. And like I've had cases of mine where, I mean, keep in mind, I'm an endodontist, but I am a junior endodontist. I'm not 15, but I am a junior endodontist. And I've had cases where I've started it and I've gone, this is beyond me. And I get it sent off to someone like Mehdi who's got, you know, a decade's experience on top of mine. And, you know, I think Mehdi, you've had one or two where you've said this is beyond you as well. If I'm yeah. And- yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. sometimes you just simply don't know until you start. So you start and you're like, whoa, this is more complex. Mm-hmm. It's either anatomical. It's either the unknown. And, and you know, I also add this to it, that sometimes you see healing, you know, Healing is important because um, you do a review and you think, Mark, you've done your Academy Award-winning endodontic therapy on this tooth, yeah. you know, and then you're like, the tooth next door's got a hockey stick style, you know, Ninja Axis style endo, and you're like, whoa, that one actually worked for many years. It's got silver points or whatever, and yours is perfect. It just doesn't for that patient for whatever reason, but it's not working. It's not healing. It's symptomatic. What are the reasons for the symptoms? Um, sometimes there might be other reasons, like periodontal around the tooth or whatever. But uh, uh, what I'm trying to say is I agree with Mark that um, you just sometimes just say, you know, it's complex. You cannot give the patient answers. You simply don't know. Harold Messer, Professor, Emeritus Professor, used to sometimes go, we just simply don't know everything. Yeah. And we're just not going to understand the human body or why this tooth in the mouth, whatever that happened, didn't work. And you think you did it well and you think you didn't see a crack, but there might be a crack. You just don't see the tooth in 3D or it just didn't work. And, and, and yes, they had four others that worked or had mediocre endo that worked, you know. Yeah. So I think that's important. Hard to predict uh, sometimes. That sometimes it's hard to predict. And so that's good that you pull out. And it's good that sometimes we also admit to not being god you know and like you can't perform miracles every time and then just in some patients in some situations we do give up and we sometimes don't understand why and we wonder if there's an underlying element to it bruxism is one tmd is the other stress and everybody grinding type a personalities living in sydney not in forests you know all that kind of stuff and at the end of the day you do your best this is what um and I think this is what um, I, I'll have to quote. Um, I think this is the person, Mark, correct me, um, Paul Fitzwalter. He quotes, the, I mean, I quote him. Um, he's, a, he's obviously a very well-known, experienced endodontist. At the end of the day, you do your best, but remember, guys, remember the young guys out there, and this is to the newbie dentists, do the basics right. Yeah. Do the basics right, communicate well, and you're a lot less likely to go wrong. And us endodontists, we still do the basics, right? I still have a very important diagnostic sieve um, from start. I always try not miss stuff. I have some pointers that I have in my little consent sheet and Mark has seen. And then I I, I try not to miss stuff. Um, I try to spend more time assessing the case. um, And I don't always assess it in isolation. Do you see what we see? And the answer is you will see it with time. 
Yeah. So we might see more today than I saw 10 years ago. And I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. I still make mistakes, you know. Yeah. And this is this is all I want to say to the newbie dentists. Um, I think you guys have a team. Don't forget that we're there. If you're in Melbourne or Sydney or if you live in Dubbo, remember that we're still there, you know. Yeah. Um, just a phone call away if you get confused. And sometimes it's not our field. We'll tell you, no, 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 this sounds like a TMD. Send to your TMD expert or send to this or that or the other. The one thing I want to quickly touch on before we just get on to talking about your courses and stuff coming up is in terms of diagnostics, specifically around like the pulp testing, cold testing, uh, I find as a new grad, that's something that I really struggle with because it's a huge variation of symptom. Either there's nothing or then there's like, a, they're like hypersensitive and then there are other teeth that like they respond and they're normal. So it's tough to kind of use that as like a barometer of like, okay, where are we at with the pulpal health? So any, and especially because, you know, we're all in, in dental school, in Melbourne Uni, we had like the actual CO2 sticks. So we're using those a little bit more consistently. Now, a lot of the practice have like yeah. the endofrost and things. So you're not sure if is it, is it the tooth not responding? Is my con pellet just like not cold enough? So if you have like a, just like a few minutes, maybe each of you just like a little bit of advice about more predictable cold testing, um, that'd be like super valuable. Yeah, so uh, I guess I'll stop, and I'm sure Mark will add to it, and he may also not. We, we look, there's different ways to skin a cat. I hope you're not a vegan or vegetarian. <laughs> um, so I'll come up with a better job. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I'd say that I'll do it differently to Mark, and we're all clinicians, so you ask 10 people this question, and they'll probably do it slightly differently. Um, one thing I know about pop testing is that the colder the ice, we're talking about the, um, you know, the CO2 stick, let's say, style. Yeah. So the colder it is, the better. And where you put it on the tooth is important. So with crown margins, I always look for a bit of tooth or recession. I may put it on the palatal aspect. And I might also multiple test the same tooth from various aspects like buckle, palatal. So I do that routinely. The second thing is the colder, the better. So endofrost, you said, what degree is it? It's minus 40. Yeah. So now we have endovit which is Australian-made product, which I buy, which is minus 55 degrees. And, and that's a spray as well? That's a spray. So we're getting colder and colder, but remember that minus 72 is still better, especially in some circumstances where you really need a response and everything, say, for example, calcified or scotland pop, you know, re recession. Yeah. Um, so I always go by ice, ice tests, or the colder the ice, the better. Yeah. And I always go by control control teeth and what to expect in that patient because as you said correctly hyper response some patient might be just hyper responsive when you even probe them like you might do a normal periodontal probing everything's healthy but they just flinch and jump right so in that patient you say this is normal perfectly healthy whereas another patient you put ice on they they feel it they just don't say anything they don't even flinch you know? yeah. so but they, 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 when you tell them is it the gum or the tooth they will tell you you know, and you want to put the ice on cervical margin, yeah. uh, generally as a principle, and you want to put the electric pop tester on the um, um, incisal edge, for example. Mm -hmm. So those are the, 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 the minor variations. I only would use an electric pop tester in young patients because of the undifferentiated A-delta fibers and uh, the false positives you might get or false negatives you might get with ice. And um, I also use it in calcified canals. Yeah. I also would add that there is a test. I have a pulse oximeter in trauma cases where I have, it's the ear, ear um, size pulse oximeter. Uh, it's the Nalco brand I get, which I can put around teeth and get a pulse, get a um, blood supply to the tooth because we're talking here really neural supply and neural yeah. supply in trauma cases or various cases where the patient's even a bruxer cannot be as good. 
but there could be still blood supply to the tooth. I also get the patient to tell me, and this is what I tell the patient, listen, patient, this is a very subjective test. I may treat the wrong tooth, or we might all get it wrong. So you are here right now to focus. I know you're in pain, or I know that you want me to just jump over the step, but this is the most important test of the lot for me. You know, often for the endodontist, we do all the other tests. We should walk the probe, for example. Yeah. We should transilluminate, right, to look for crack and craze lines. We should do all the other tests, but this is the one. Palpation percussion aside is really the pulp test. So good good point, um, good good question you asked. So I tell them, look, you know, I'm, I'm doing this. I want to reproduce your chief complaint, so you're going to have to tell me, you know, and I do a normal tooth. I say, I think this is a normal tooth, okay, so quick, sharp. <laughs> goes away yeah. quick. That's that's relatively normal. Um, and then if something lingers or if something comes on slow and leaves slow and lingers off and it gives you the intense discomfort that you experience, then you're going to tell me. If you don't feel it and you're sure you don't feel it, it's, you know, you put it on for a few seconds more and it's not from the gum, you don't feel anything from the tooth and it's very different to the other, you tell me. And I, I, at the end of this particular process, I always tell them, look, you know, if I'm uncertain, I tell them more. I look at top and bottom, and I say, could be this, could be that. I'm 70% sure it's this, 30% that. Do we wait? Time is on our side. You can go home, do a pain diary, come back, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll re repeat the test. Or do you, you know, no, no, doctor, I'm in agony. I'm pretty sure it's this dude. I think this is it. Then I go, well, you know, with your consent, with the test we did, which you took a part in, we're going to both treat this tooth. We're in it together. Yeah. So I think what, I don't know what Mark. That's, a good, to, that's yeah. a good way of putting it. So um, for me with the pulp testing, I mean, I don't like the sprays personally, um, even the negative 50. Many knows this. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I, yeah. I, I, CO2 is the gold standard when it comes to pulp testing because it's consistent every time you use it. Um, when you are using spray, the temperature you hit the tooth with, each, each and every tooth is going to be different. Even Variable, it's yeah. It's different So you've got to spray the pellet, put it on, spray the pellet, put it on. You can't go on, 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 on. Yeah. Um, and when you've got things like crown margins, trauma as well, the sprays just through personal experiences aren't as accurate. So um, really the only advice I can give is the CO2 tanks aren't that cheap. You buy them from Air Liquid, they come in, they you know, they, they give it to you. You can just get a, a, a builder or a carpenter to install it. It's really not that hard to you know, put the setup in there. Um, really isn't that expensive. The expensive part is the actual little CO2 sticks. They last forever, pretty much. So, um, honestly, it's uh, Medi mentioning using the reference teeth is very, very important. Uh, what I say to the patient is, um, what I want you to do when you feel something, I want you to lift your left hand. When it goes away, I want you to put your left hand down. And that tells you about the intensity and the duration of what it is that they're feeling. And you look for differences to normal. And if they jump out of the chair and throw a punch every single time, well, that's their normal. Um, and you can maybe put it onto a tooth and 30 seconds later they start to feel it. So it's a you know, delayed response yeah. like that. Um, the other part is as well, patients will refuse pulp testing because they've had it done in the past. And if they refuse pulp testing, you refuse to treat them. Yeah. Just dig your heels in, just refuse um, because... You can't treat what you can't diagnose. And if you're not going to pulp test, you're not diagnosing. So even if the patient says, and many and I can dis disagree about this sometimes, if I'm uncertain, I need to be, I need to be pretty much 100% certain before I pick up a drill because I don't want to have that conversation with somebody that, well, we did this treatment and it wasn't necessary in the end. 
Yeah. I, I like to be a hundred. So even if they're holding the side of their face in agony and saying, no, it's definitely this tooth, it's definitely this tooth. And I've done some testing and it turns out to me that tooth's responding within normal limits comparatively, I'm going to send them home um, and they're going to hate me for it, but I'm going to send them home because, and I tell them, you're going to hate me a lot more if I drill the wrong tooth. And if they go, no, I won't. I go, yeah, you will. You're saying that now, but I know you will because I've seen this in the past with other clinicians. They, you know, how they feel at the time when they're in pain and thinking that you're going to fix it versus how they are later where it didn't fix it because yeah, pain. Um, yeah, it's... I, I, unless I'm certain, I, I send the patient away and say, look, I've got to be certain. Let's wait. It's not going to kill you. It's going to be, it's going to hurt like hell, but it's not going to kill you. Cause if they do have something, it's going to kill them. Like, you know, and, um, you know, you put them on analgesics, anti-inflammatories. So a lot of the time they're saying I'm taking endone, I'm taking Percocet, I'm taking whatever over the counter neurofen works really well uh you know it's an anti-inflammatory and those severe toothache pains are inflammatory pain so they need an anti-inflammatory more than they need to have opioids and panadine for same as if they're yep. you know if a patient's clamoring for antibiotics but it's obviously an inflammatory pain you just got to say no to them doesn't matter if they say that you're the worst dentist on earth i get tons of patients coming into me this is on a weekly basis saying to me my dentist is terrible because i was in pain and he didn't give me antibiotics and i'm like yeah, but you don't need antibiotics, <laughs> you know. Um, th- th- sometimes a patient's going to be angry about something that to them they have a right to be angry about, but to you they, they really, it's in their best interest. Um, so di- their pulp testing and diagnosis is part of that as well. Um, there isn't a whole lot of fancy stuff when it comes to diagnosis, really, and, and pulp testing. It's really it. I mean, electric pulp testing I only bring out if the pulp's calcified, otherwise I don't touch it at all. Um, especially in old elderly patients. I mean, EPT is a lot more accurate, I've found, in elderly patients. Um, there's some patients when you try and communicate with them what you want from a pulp tester. So, you know, raise your hand, put it down, and they just don't get it. Well, they yeah. say, but I didn't feel pain. Did you feel cold? Yes, I felt cold. Okay. Um, so you put the electric pulp tester on them, and that's a lot more accurate in that case because they they will feel it. They yeah. they feel a sting. It's, uh, you know, they hate you for it, but they feel it. Um, oh, and the other part is when you tell them to raise their hand, make sure they raise the hand that isn't the one closest to you because I have been hit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't let little old ladies keep their purses on their laps. Yeah. <laughs> I have been hit like a hammer throw, uh, pulp yeah. a, a patient. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's really it. Yeah, so just, like I said, just have a good systemized way of doing it. Try and do it the same way every time. Yeah. I've heard and, you know, you guys just reaffirmed that you know, having the spray is probably not the best, most predictable way just because the temperature drops and it's not. Um, so that's why I think that a lot of that variability that I'm experiencing comes probably from using the spray versus using the CO2. So to wrap things up, guys, um, obviously you're both really involved with teaching and you're, you know, I came to your course that we, you guys had on like about two, three weeks ago. So tell me a little bit about you know, the teaching side of things. I know it's something that you guys are both kind of passionate about. And uh, honestly, from a, from a spectrum, 
tear like side you guys are really good at it as well i learned a lot from you guys and the hands-on components and the, the tips and tricks that you passed along to us so tell me a little bit about what's on the horizon the next few months next uh, little bit and um i'm definitely like i said i'll post them in the show notes as well for the uh, for the listeners if they're interested yeah. in checking them out sure um so which course did you actually do i can't remember mm-hmm. Sorry. um it was the curve is like the one that was by curve okay. like the, uh, yeah. tf adaptive system yeah. yeah yeah so we call that one the entree before the main yeah. Uh, so that's sort of a basic course for the newbie dentist is probably highly recommended. So the one day courses we run around Australia uh, probably cover the basics and, you know, still lots of tips and tricks and you get to watch a lot. But in terms of hands-on, it's not as hands-on as advanced courses we run um, uh, at the ADA New South Wales. We call it advanced contemporary endodontics, not advanced endodontics because you know, they're two different names and they run both courses. So it's yeah. advanced contemporary endodontics. If you guys are interested, look for Mark Johnson, myself, uh, and often you'll find there's also Dr. Shankwick Saturn or Jeff Young, uh, part of that as well. Um, so they're very good courses because um, if you've done basic courses, you've sort of been using rotaries for a while, you may be able to touch on that, learn a, a few different instrumentation techniques like to be up-to-date instruments from different companies. And it is the course where we don't get driven by a company to teach you because there's only one product there from one company. So it's um, all the different companies. They all give you different um, uh, equipment. And it's also the course where we can teach you a little bit on retreatment, the philosophies of how we retreat, give you a little bit of hands-on on it, post-removal, for example, the different types of posts that we have. Um, and uh, we do touch on, you know, fractured instrument removal, not to come out of that course without a microscope. Everybody starts to remove instruments. We don't do that. We don't, you know, we're not cowboy dentists. We're not going to teach you guys cowboy. They're like a lot of the times, you know, the principles, you know, how it's done, you know, when it's done and how we assess it. But at the end of the day, we want you guys to leave that with a, a better clinician. And also, according to what people say, you definitely doing the advanced course will know a lot more about the MB2. Like, you know exactly where to look for and what yeah. tools to use to look for it. And um, you're more, more predictable at finding or calcified canals, basically, and how to manage those. Um, I think that's the courses, Advanced Contemporary Endodontics. We do run a uh, long course. Uh, so that's the only long course that I'm aware of in Australasia. So you can go to King's College of London. It's sort yeah. of the similar type of um, course. They call it the Masters in Endodontics, but this is called Mini Residency Endodontics. Unfortunately, at this point in time, until uh, we, you know people come up with uh, other courses, um, it's it's really difficult to get into that course. That we have a um, long wait list, um, but then again, people do pull out. So if you're interested, contact the ADA New South Wales. I love um, the guy called Jeff Coe. He's a general dentist um, in. Um, he's got multiple practices in Brisbane, so we love running courses with him. So we do advanced endodontics around Australia. The next one coming up, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, 26th, 27th of yeah. October. Okay, so um, October 26th, October 27th in Cairns. Yeah, so it's sort of like a, a tax deductible, you know. Yeah. We're at James Cook Uni there. It's yeah. a very good um, facility to run hands-on courses, and we give you guys a bit more hands-on than, say, the Kirk course you came to a meet. So yeah. hopefully we get to see you in Cairns. We can go 
dipping in the pool and go to the Green Island or whatever and do That'd some snorkeling. Yeah. Um, so we do like those type of things. And I think next year we've got Queenstown coming up. So if you're key on skiing, well, in July somewhere, we'll go with Mark Evans, Professor Mark Evans, myself and Mark Johnson to Queenstown and we'd run a similar type of course, Advanced Synodonics. Apart from that, really, I'm involved at the ASC level. So I'm, I hope you you know you don't mind me. I'm just sort of... Um, yeah, for sure. The, the, the root cause has caused a lot of anxiety. Yeah. So the title is Root Cause, It's Pulp Fiction, explanation <laughs> mark. And um, uh, September 3rd, 7 p.m. Um, uh, Eastern Australian, uh, Eastern time, um, 7 p.m. Sydney time. We're there with Professor Laurie Walsh, uh, you know, microbiologist and dentist that everybody knows. Um, at the college level, um, uh, myself, uh, Professor Morteza Avmeshev, an oncologist, for professor and teacher at Wollongong University. Benson Riddle is a general practitioner, medical, and he's going to debug the meridians. Um, so yeah. this whole thing about a tooth being related to something around the body and cancers and all that. And we also have Brett Gilbert, the endodontist from the U.S., and um, uh, Peter Norton, who's a dentist that I think a lot of people know. That's a good panel. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's a panel discussion, but we do have um, expert opinion from various professors from different countries, um, yeah. mainly US-based and Australia-based, so they make um, statements on the root cause. And I think it's a really good teaching tool from the young dentist side and all dentists because you guys do more endo than we do, 75% of all the endos done by you guys. When patients challenge you, you know, then at least instead of having a yarn and spending time and then still they sit on the fence, the ones that are not completely at the fence, on the fence, they're sort of in between, you can just direct them to this YouTube clip eventually. But if you want to ask questions, we'll go live. So um, it's So that at 7 p.m. that time, if anyone's interested, come to it. Then please come and listen to Professor Torbinishad. You're probably too, you know, the hands-on courses for ended on his postgrads and oral surgeons and all that. But come and listen to him for four hours CPD, three and a half hours or so of his talk on Saturday morning from about 8 a.m. to about 12 p.m., Again, in Sydney, 21st of September. And I, I can share, if you like, the info for that. I think I already have shared. Yeah, for sure. He, he discusses yeah. extract or not extract. You know? Yeah. He discusses topic. why do we still do surgery. He's just written his latest textbook on endodontic surgery, microsurgery, uh, with Rubenstein, with Richard Rubenstein, the, you know, one of the gurus in endodontic surgery. But he does discuss his patient factors and implant prognoses. And, you know, he's done stuff with Goodacre. So this, it's pretty cool. Like he's, you know, he, he, he's an overall perspective on treatment planning, really. So if you're interested in multidisciplinary treatment planning, come listen to Professor Torbinijad, um, 21st of September. That's, that's, a, that's all I've got to cover. I don't know, yeah. Mark, add to it. Yeah, yeah, plug in the pluggables. Um, so, <laughs> um, so we've got one more uh, revealing the endodontist secrets for Kerr on September 7th in Intercont- oh, Intercontinental right. Double Bay in Sydney. Uh, which I get to stay overnight at, which is great because it's an awesome hotel and they've got a really nice breakfast buffet. <laughs> uh, Mehdi mentioned we got October 26, 27 in Cairns uh, doing the two-day lectures and hands-on. Uh, I'm doing a, uh, a one-day uh, thing of lectures with a little bit of like an hour hands-on at the end of the day for Young Dentist Hub on October 11. Oh, yeah, nice. Uh, so the theme of the day is going to be about endodontic complications, so which should be a great fun uh, to talk about. Uh, November 23, Mehdi and I are going to be in WA at Perth for the ADA Western Australia doing a one-day 
lectures and hands-on program, uh, pretty much start to finish of an endo. Uh, you know, again, not nice. We, we do MB2. Entry-level stuff. And we've got MB2 as well. Uh, and uh, many mentioned about the Advanced Contemporary Endo Parts Part 1 in, in ADA New South Wales. So it's booked out this year, obviously. But uh, next year, there's March and November, if you want to sign up for that in advance. And um, we're also possibly having... Uh, a lecturer from Japan coming in March to to Sydney um, named Teruchi, and he's sort of like uh, if you ask if you had a person that was better at removing instruments on the planet, you'd probably be hard pressed to find someone other than this guy. Yeah. Uh, like this is a guy that endodontists listen to, so it's going to be really cool having him out. Um, I'm not I, I'm I'm not involved in lecturing at it. Many's not involved in lecturing at it, but that's just something really cool that. I don't know if it's going to be open for general dentists to be involved. It is. It, no, it okay, is. It is. Um, the, okay. lecture, the lecture, the hour and a half. There's an hour and a half. There's a lecture part of it that's going to be open to general dentists, which I think would be really cool to go and listen to. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Because I plan on going yeah, to it just as a, you know, to, to, to listen because this guy's got a very good reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've done advanced courses and you've proven, you can attend his hands-on course, but um, that's by special selection. Yeah. Uh, so if uh, endodontists and postgrads don't fill up the room, then possibly advanced course. Many residency in endodontics, um, for sure, because you've done a long course, you you, you could qualify for doing his hands-on on instrument removal. Yeah. Um, he, uh, uh, the last one is, uh, I forgot about the Young Dentist Hub next week. So next week I'm in Brisbane on Sunday doing a one-day course on, again, the hands-on will be prep obturate similar to the Kerr one you did. Yeah. And the, the addition is we've got three scopes and we'll be discussing MB2 at detail and we'll be using instruments and a special technique at locating it. Yeah. That's next week, Sunday. Uh, <laughs> Young dentist. Awesome. Busy. I, 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 busy I, I forgot because, of course, we do, we do so much lecturing you forget. I'm doing, oh, uh, just forget <laughs> stuff. Yeah. I'm doing um, – so I, I lecture with uh, Boss Orthodontics with uh, Vandana. Uh, so I'll be lecturing on February 16th for that next year as well as part, okay. of their, um, part of their orthodontic program, which would be good fun too. Awesome. So yeah, uh, send, make sure, uh, I know Matthew, you sent me a few things already. Uh, if there's anything else, let me know. I'll put it in the show notes for anyone listening is, who's interested in attending some of these courses. Uh, and they can you. check it out, get some more information and, and definitely attend. Uh, from the entrepreneurial side of things, you know, I love that you guys are doing all this stuff and, you know, the little side hustles outside of your day-to-day clinical is what keeps it fun. Yeah, and keeps you kind it of, does. It does. Things exciting, right? So I definitely yeah. have a lot of respect for that. And uh, guys, thank you so much. I know we went a little bit over the time I kind of promised you, but um, a lot of valuable content, a lot of you know useful tips and tricks and like phrases and, and mindset stuff that I think a lot of li- people listening, new grads or even anyone who's been out for a few years can really benefit from it. So thanks again for, for coming by and uh, sharing some information. Thank, thank you so much for um, inviting myself and of course my, on behalf of Mark as well. And remember that we're, uh, I love being social. So um, I'm on, on Facebook, I'm addicted to it now, I'm Insta and I go live. Okay. So the reality is what I'm trying to say is if those newbie dentists are watching and we're, we're very open to communication. Yeah. So if you're wherever you are in wherever you are in Australia or outside Australia, if you're listening, um, just communicate with us. Um, we love uh, seeing what you guys do and we'll, we'll gauge where you're at, you know, and um, we can always um, mentor you through it. Um, the more people, I communicate with the better. I'm a very social, you know, <laughs> the social endodontist. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on this episode, guys. It was amazing. A lot of great content that we covered up. I know you, before we wrapped up, you wanted to just have a quick disclaimer as well, uh, just based on your affiliations with certain brands. So go ahead and do that if you want to do that now.
Yeah, Ma, you do it. You do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my name is my name is uh, Mark Johnstone. I'm an endodontist working out of Maribyrnong, Victoria, and in Chatswood, New South Wales. Uh, I am a KOL for Kerr. I get paid to lecture for Kerr Endodontics, but I have no financial or vested interest in any of the products or services discussed when I talk about endodontics. And my turn. <laughs> my name is Mehdi Rahimi. I'm an endodontist in Sydney and I lecture. I'm a KOL for Kerr, Ultradent and Action. Um, bear in mind when I'm discussing, I have no invested interest in any product I'm discussing. I'm just here to tell you what I use and what I do. And um, yeah, I make no investment or no invested interest in any of the products I might discuss in case I mention one of these um, products during the discussions.